Good morning and welcome to Coffee with the Sarlos. I'm Kelly. Good morning, I'm Karen. We're going to start off with show notes today as usual. We've got our last evening with medium events coming up in December. It is already sold out, so if you are wanting tickets for 2019, we've got them on sale at the website by sarlo.com. The dates are April 26th, August 23rd, and December 13th of the new year. Those would make for a wonderful Christmas present. Yes, they would. Mm -hmm. And we have mugs as well now that go with both of the podcast shows, Coffee with the Sarlos and Sips of Sanity. They're $15. That would make a great stocking stuffer or to put stuff into to make a nice little gift. Um, And they're on the site too at bysarlo.com. Along with our gift certificates, which would also make a great Christmas (laughs) gift. To be fair, we do feel extremely honored when people choose to gift us to others. Oh, yeah. So if you are wanting to purchase gift certificates for sessions, you can do so by contacting us directly or requesting them through the website by sarlo.com. And for those who are receiving, you can experience your session from anywhere in the world via Skype, FaceTime, or telephone. We have a second podcast series called Sips of Sanity. It is found at bysarlo.com only. It is not on iTunes. It's 10 minutes long. It runs the first Monday of every month from Monday to Friday. And they're 10 minutes about emotional and intuitive intelligence tools. Excellent. We are so excited this morning. We have guest Kelly Morgan on the show. She is a registered psychotherapist owner of the Morgan Center, which addresses PTSD and general mental health here in North Bay. Welcome, Kelly. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good morning, Kelly. I'm so excited to share you with our listeners today. Uh, we know that your center does a variety of issues in and offering all kinds of services. So we're going to go through that later in the show. But first, we're going to focus in today on PTSD. So can you just start by helping our listeners understand what it is? Sure. I think PTSD from a perspective of people who suffer from it and from those who don't know anything about it um, is is quite vast and different. So PTSD is um, heavily uh, observed with symptoms or felt through symptoms. PTSD uh, symptomology includes... And it it typically also, I must say this, um, it's usually three to six months after the trauma has been experienced that people start, just start to feel the symptoms of PTSD. So it's not an immediate symptomology that starts to occur with clients. Typically, the symptoms include hypervigilance, sleep difficulties, insomnia, or oversleeping, um, mood changes, significant mood changes, irritability, anger, aggression, depression, anxiety, panic attacks. That includes also panic attacks. Uh, typically, you'll see clients start to have extreme difficulties with relationships, and those are primary relationships, so familial relationships. And alcohol and other substance abuse typically will start to occur as well. Kelly, can people also experience body pain? Oh, that great question. I think particularly for men, somatic complaints become a primary sort of way of them expressing their symptoms. So somatic complaints is exactly what you uh, suggested, are body issues, so body pain. Uh, Body pain that is unexplainable through any other sort of physician 
um, looking at it, the medical model would see it as just pain in the shoulders or upset stomach. Stress in the body then continues to sort of mask uh, what typical trauma-related issues would be psychologically. So somebody might think that they just have upset stomachs and migraines, for instance, and not realize or associate it with a car accident that happened, say, three months prior. Exactly. And the focus on the symptoms of the physical symptoms then nullifies or numbs the psychological and emotional symptoms because the client then tends to focus on the physical and hoping to control those physical symptoms. Uh, unbeknownst to them, you know, they're experiencing significant trauma. Kelly, does that have anything to do with people feeling amounts of shame and guilt too then? For trauma in particular, shame and guilt, I think it's important that people know that guilt is a feeling that they've done something bad. Um, and so when guilt is unresolved for an individual, it turns into shame, which is the belief that I am a bad person because of it. So particularly with operational stress injuries, uh, veterans, um, first responders, they feel guilty for not being able to save a person. And that guilt then turns into shame that I am not a good person because of it. And that complication of the trauma with shame and guilt leaves, you know, the basic human person thinking they had the ability to go over and above and be something, you know, of a savior or that they were not doing their job. That is absolutely heartbreaking to hear that, mm -hmm. that somebody could spend years educating themselves to help others, mm -hmm. then to get a job and go through that whole process, go out and think that that's going to be what the love of your life is going to be, or one of them, and then to experience that type of thinking process. Mm -hmm. So are you also talking then about a mindset? Absolutely. I think the mindset, we talk about operational culture. So when first responders enter into a culture or veterans, the culture is to be, you know, very strong. Uh, your job is to save people. Your job is to intervene in times of other people's traumas or countries' traumas. And your job is to go in and make it better or somehow intervene in this trauma. And when we look at you know, situations uh, with deployments to Bosnia, Afghanistan, Rwanda, Syria, where there were traumas that were unbelievable to people. Um, and then just every day, you know, being a police officer or being an ambulance driver, every day they're called to someone else's trauma. Okay, so you've thrown that out there, a couple of great occupations. Can I throw out teachers? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, regardless of your occupation, people experience variations of trauma. So without uh, me knowing what that particular trauma is that a teacher, for example, would experience, I, I don't think trauma is prejudice. I think that trauma happens to all of us. There's many different levels of trauma. Certainly when we have complicated trauma, we're looking at um, people who have experienced trauma after trauma after trauma or a cumulative trauma. So if we're using teachers as the example, what would be 
trauma after trauma in this situation? Um, I think I would have to know the, the situation. Um, Kelly, can I say the school shootings? Oh, at, would that oh, be a good absolutely, example? Absolutely, yes. Okay, now, so if you've been a part of one, mm -hmm. um, or you have school security at your door and the alarms go off two, three times a week, two, three times a day, is that what you mean? Absolutely. I think, you know, just uh, hypothetically looking at a situation, say Columbine or some of the other copycat uh, shootings that have happened in the States, you look at teachers going back into a classroom, dealing with grief, grief and loss of other students, and the grief that students also have felt because of the loss of their fellow peers. I think it's unimaginable to go back into a war zone and pick up and carry on. Kelly, can somebody have some symptoms of PTSD even if they haven't been at that particular school? So say they're in another area or another province or country or state or something, could they experience it in small ways? Or is it just one particular level? Yeah, I think it's important to differentiate um, PTSD as a diagnosis versus experiencing trauma. So there is a, you know, a psychological assessment or a diagnosis for PTSD, and those are individuals who have, you know, definitely demonstrated significant symptoms that have interfered with life and their emotional and psychological well-being versus people who have vicarious trauma. And those are individuals who, you know, perhaps if we use the example of a teacher who are teachers and who have watched and heard of a trauma that's experienced in another school, then they certainly will feel, you know, symptoms that are related to trauma, but certainly not a diagnosis of PTSD. And would that be more along the lines of empathy? And anticipation, feeling anxiety? Anxiety, you know, you start irrational fear-based thoughts with that could happen here if it didn't happen there. They start to use cognitive distortions, which then increase anxiety. Cognitive distortions are what if, catastrophic thinking, uh, feeling helpless, feeling as if they don't have control. Cognitive distortions include maximizing a situation rather than looking at it from more of a gray area so black and white thinking all kinds of other cognitive distortions would would appear then would it be accurate to say then when you talk about experiencing trauma vicariously that with all the cognitive distortions you can develop depression from witnessing another person's ptsd uh, i wouldn't necessarily say that okay um, i think you know, there's so many other driving forces for experiencing anxiety or or situational anxiety, situational depression. I think there's a lot of correlates to the development of mental health issues. We look at the biopsychosocial model, so genetic predisposition, uh, psychological personality traits that drive uh, mental health susceptibility as well as socially. So the social implications, how that affects us on an individual level, as well as, you know, experiencing trauma. They all interplay. So if we go back to the individual with PTSD and some of the symptoms, Kelly, do they get flashbacks? Like, do they actually relive that event? Absolutely. I think flashbacks 
are the most terrifying symptom that clients report they feel. Uh, flashbacks go typically right back to the traumatic event. They relive the traumatic event. They see it. It's a visual. It's very powerful. And I think what the contradiction is, is that when you have PTSD, you don't realize that this is a symptom. So flashbacks tend to bring the person back to the trauma. Um, therapeutically, what we do is we talk about why we do that. Why do we have flashbacks? And that's in the hope that we can go back and change the past. Is it safe to say that the flashbacks can also occur in dreams? Absolutely. Dreams, nightmares. Um, nightmares are reliving the trauma with variations of the content to the dream or the nightmare, but certainly terrifying. Clients report waking up, you know, full of fear, sweating, and so aroused, so a hyper arousal. And we, and we must speak to the the nature of the traumatic nightmares and flashbacks then bring on a physical response to that, which is the startle response, the fight or flight response. So people actually have a very difficult time differentiating the fact that it's a symptom rather than it's actually happening again. Well, isn't that a wonderful conversation to have right there with somebody in your life mm -hmm. to be able to say to a child or a partner or a coworker, that it's not happening again, that they're just reliving a memory of it. Absolutely. Okay. That I would imagine that that could be quite soothing. Very soothing. I think it grounds people. I think part of the process in healing is to remind ourselves that as much as they can be traumatic flashbacks in the beginning of treatment, they also become a way that we can control our well-being. So if we ground ourselves and, and recognize that our present is more important and that we are safe in our present surroundings, we're not being traumatized. I think that's an important factor for clients to feel comfortable in their own space. Unless, of course, they're not. And that's then that would be a whole other issue again, right? Whole other issue. If we look at people who have PTSD but are still in their workplace, then they're re-traumatized um, and they don't have the skills or the awareness uh, to deal with what's going on with them psychologically and physically. And to be in an unsafe space, I think, speaks to children who experience trauma. Certainly, children who have traumatic upbringings feel completely unsafe, but they learn how to adapt, which we call trauma attachment. So children that are raised in trauma begin to attach to the trauma. So it's a, it's a paradigm that starts very early in life, that the strongest attachment is a traumatic one. So Kelly, do you mean to say that if their parent traumatized them repeatedly in, in childhood, that they would create the attachment to that parent for the rest of their life and have a hard time walking away from them? Um, I think that's part of it. I think we also learned that uh, adult attachments mimic childhood attachments. So when we have a traumatic attachment as a child, we do subconsciously expect that we will continue to be traumatized in relationships. So again, an example, if I'm traumatized by my childhood, say a dad, I might marry a man who has the same characteristics and attached to the trauma in both men. 
Is that what you mean? Yes. I think there are plenty of research that suggests, you know, why do we why do we go into domestic situations? Why do we go into all types of traumatic relationships as an adult? Because we logically have the ability to question our relationships, but there is a high correlation between the normalcy that's placed on traumatic attachments into adulthood. So I think for clients who come from trauma, childhood trauma, the likelihood that they experience um, unhealthy relationships is very high. I think it's a beautiful thing to hear for somebody this morning who can't understand someone else, where you might sit back and not understand why a girlfriend keeps picking the same person over and over again in different relationships and feel really angry with them and not understand that that person really needs help to see the, tra- the. I'm sorry, Kelly, what did you call it again? Traumatic attachment. For them to not understand what that is and just be mad at your friend or mad at your mom or whoever that's doing these things. Thank you for explaining that. Welcome. Just want to make really clear for people, Kelly, um, some things that you've said in some of the examples here is that PTSD can be triggered I'll say basically in two simple ways that I'm kind of defining right now is that you can go through the experience yourself or you could actually watch another person go through it and still receive the PTSD. Oh, just to clarify, um, we have vicarious trauma, but it's not a diagnosis. So I think it's important when we make a distinction between the diagnosis of PTSD and the experience of trauma. So we can certainly have um, symptoms of trauma, um, but it wouldn't meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. And how we differentiate that really is the length of time people or clients suffer, the symptoms, how much it is uh, impacting their lives, and then looking at the trauma. So there are very specific traumas that meet the diagnosis or you have to have certain traumatic exposure, and they are the following, the death, um, seeing the death of a person, witnessing the death of a person, rape, abuse, childhood abuse, are all symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, or not symptoms, but the criteria that has to be met. So um, I'll direct this at Karen then. When you said witnessing the trauma, would that was your example like she just mentioned witnessing someone else's death? Okay, because I think you were both trying to say the same thing, but not that it has to be your death, obviously. Absolutely, yes. So Kelly, I know the last um, little symptom that we've written down here is avoidance. Can you talk to listeners about what it is they end up avoiding? Absolutely. I think avoidance is an anxiety or brother and sister. They hang out together. So if we have anxiety, and if we are relating it to post-traumatic stress disorder, then we use avoidance strategies in order to deal with our pain or emotional anxiety. We use avoidance strategies such as avoiding particular people, places, and things to manage uh, the hyperarousal, to manage our fears. And remember that the fear that is associated with trauma is the fear of being attacked, the fear of being vulnerable, extremely vulnerable to death, to could be warfare, could be shootings. So those are the vulnerabilities we use avoidance for. 
some other examples may be a veteran who will avoid any type of area where there's a lot of people that they can't use their skills to sort of uh, see if they're a threat. So for example, going to Walmart would be an extremely difficult experience for a veteran with PTSD without uh, the therapeutic strategies to deal with that. An example for a police officer would be just, you know, being a civilian, going to breakfast somewhere um, and feeling like they have to be a police officer. Kelly, I've seen this in police officers as clients who, when we teach them journeying or when it's time to lay down on the table, they would prefer to lay on the floor in the treatment room with their back up against the wall or their shoulder and part of the body up against the wall. I've seen that quite often until they feel safe enough with me that eventually they move out into the center of the room and eventually up onto the table because they are going to close their eyes and they're going to feel vulnerable. So I will offer them, if you prefer to lay on the floor and up against the wall, go ahead until you can slowly move away. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. I think just everyday functioning as a as an individual, as a person, going to a restaurant becomes, you know, an operation in terms of a surveillance. Uh, that's not only for police, but it's also for military personnel where they are making a surveillance for safety for self as well as perceived threats. Have you been able to make a professional observation that those systems for veterans and police officers or any kind of law enforcement, that those systems actually set them up to have PTSD? Because you're talking about having to behave as civilians. So if they are consistently taught or drilled into their head that there's an us-them kind of situation happening in life, does the system set them up for PTSD? I think that's a very good question. I think it's important to realize that, you know, no one is intentionally set up for PTSD. I think what happens is when we enter certain professions where we're trained uh, to be strong individuals, to be uh, programmed, really, it's a programming, so that people can operate in their occupation in a safe and effective manner. So what we see with military and policing are very rigid expectations of an individual, and those rigid expectations are to be strong and not to show vulnerability because that is in and of itself leaves people vulnerable to trauma in their workplace. So and trauma meaning that they're exposed to trauma. So the way they are taught and trained is to be above that and be very strong, uh, very black and white thinking. So I think you're right. So the workplace culture uh, is trained um, to be very, very emotionally uh, numb and driven in order to perform their duties. And I mean, it, it only is realistic to think that you have to be that way in order to survive some of the things that people are exposed to. However, with long-term accumulative trauma exposure, some people, obviously they're human, they cannot deal with it. Recently, Kelly, um, I've experienced where quite a few clients come in and say they have PTSD caused by marital situations. So they're referring to it as marital PTSD. Can you actually tell us if that exists 
or if it's actually something of a form of that they're just experiencing trauma? Yeah, I think when you look at the diagnostic criteria, which is governed by the Psychological Association of Ontario, Canada, as well as, you know, a lot of evidence-based criteria that you have to beat, I certainly have not, that doesn't exist, the term uh, marital PTSD. But I think it's important to note that people can experience trauma in marriages and there are variations in the different types of trauma. So if they're in an abusive situation with a partner, emotional, psychological, spiritual, or physical abuse, then certainly that is traumatic. And and then trauma then would have certain symptoms that are related somehow to post-traumatic. However, they're traumatic symptoms that wouldn't meet the criteria, but nonetheless, someone is still suffering the effect of being with a partner who is abusive. So even though the terminology does not exist on a diagnostic level, do you personally or professionally believe that if someone is expressing that this is the source of their trauma, that it occurred by an abuser who was, who was the person they were married to, do you think that kind of vocabulary empowers them to be able to identify the source, to be able to identify what they've experienced so that they can begin to just talk about it? Absolutely. I think the term trauma encompasses so many different emotional levels and psychological impact of uh, what people go through. So trauma is a myriad of different belief systems that are limiting. Trauma is a myriad of different uh, effects on self-esteem and self-worth and purpose. I think that differentiating between spirit and soul for people. I think that trauma, long-term trauma or a traumatic relationship leaves people without hope about self, really. And so we look at the, the effect on our spirit and our soul when we're in traumatic relationships. We leave empty. And I think for a lot of people, it's to call it something other than to blame themselves. And certainly trauma is something that is not about you. It's the effect of being with someone who has abused you. Kelly, when I think of some traumas, some quickly come to mind. They're, they're easy to think of because they're just so in our face to know what they are, like a rape. I can really get that clearly. Or somebody beating somebody up. I can really see that, especially if it's repetitive. Can you talk a little bit at all about the type of trauma somebody may go through if they're incarcerated? Would that still be called a trauma? Because I can imagine some people think, no, they're getting what they deserve. Mm. Well, as a therapist, I'm certainly driven by compassion and empathy. So, you know, to understand all different levels of people and why they're incarcerated is to look at their history, I think. And typically... There's, you know, histories of people incarcerated that have had their own experience with trauma. So we're looking at the experience of trauma and how that unwinds in someone's life. Is it fair to say, Kelly, that if somebody is quite young and has a lot of trauma going on in their life, that I don't want to say it's the cause of, but it's certainly a contributing factor to them becoming and living a life where incarceration is a result of what they've gone through because they don't know how to deal differently. There's no toolkit. 
Absolutely. I think the toolkit um, for children who are exposed throughout their developmental years with trauma, we see how the brain changes with trauma. You know, and there's new research that, uh, that explores the changes in the brain. Also, the predictors of criminal, early criminal behavior are uh, rooted in traumatic experiences as a child. We look at the social modeling of, of parents um, and how that impacts children's uh, poor decision-making, uh, lack of role models, and certainly criminal behavior and trauma, substance abuse starts early in adolescence uh, for those people who have not been supported or not there hasn't been an intervention for their uh, traumatic experiences. So Kelly, by the time somebody is living that type of lifestyle where they're incarcerated, perhaps is it like, is it fair to say that when they started taking the drugs to begin with or drinking, that it was a coping mechanism for them? Um, I think when we look at all the different factors, coping becomes really uh, numbing. So, you know, whether you've experienced a trauma when you're 35 versus five or six, there has to be a point in your life where you start to numb the pain. So numb the feelings, numb the fear, numb, you know, just how, how worthless uh, you're feeling. So the incarceration piece then, when an individual is incarcerated, what I love as the role of as a clinician is to see where this person comes from. How did I end up here is the question. And certainly it isn't, you know, driven solely by a choice. I think it's really important for people to hear that it isn't driven by their own choice because so many people meanly say they chose this life. Meanly. And now you're sitting down saying that's actually incorrect. That's false. And I love pointing out a false belief with kindness and gentleness so that people are then invited to change their perception. Yeah, I think judgment you know, judgment as you mature emotionally becomes something that, you know, is a projection of self. So when we project our own judgments onto other people, it's really speaking about our own judgment of self. So I think it's important for society really to look at the judgments that we make so harshly of others is a reflection of ourselves. Okay. This has been such an exciting conversation for the two of us. I know I can speak on behalf of Karen as well. Um, and our full intention is to make this part one and have you back, Kelly, for part two, three, four, however many it takes to really help educate listeners about PTSD and mental health, because we haven't even gotten into what can coexist with PTSD as well. Um, we've just kind of skimmed the surface. But before we let you go, we really want to touch on you and your staff at the Morgan Center. Can you just verbally introduce us to your staff and the services that you offer so that if people are waiting for part two, three, and four, they can at least get a hold of you and know what is available to them? Absolutely. I think um, there's been a lot of time on my part sort of developing the Morgan, which is actually named after my parents, so it's not named after me. Uh, it's a tribute to, to them. The Morgan Center is eclectic in its design, eclectic in terms of offering evidence-based psychotherapy in a variety of different formats. And the variety of different formats are 
something that is a bit cutting edge in terms of offering it in Northern Ontario. So this is the first operational stress injury post-traumatic clinic in Northern Ontario. Uh, we have an outpatient program as well. And our primary uh, modalities that we utilize with clients um, are, again, evidence-based. Um, we offer equine therapy. So equine therapy is just an amazing uh, resource. Teresa Mills is our equine facilitator. She just actually returned from Arizona uh, with specific training uh, by a world-renowned equine therapist, equine leader. So she runs the equine um, portion of the treatment. We have meditation. We have cognitive-based mindfulness. Uh, we offer traumatic incident reduction, which is a therapeutic um, intervention that basically will reduce the emotional sort of reaction that clients go through. Cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive processing therapy and there's a whole list of other therapies that we utilize and it's all driven by what clients present and what clients are comfortable with so it's an integrative approach that is driven by clients which they appreciate and it's certainly respecting their position um, the other therapists that we have included at, at the morgan are all registered uh, within their particular colleges so we have dr christian weiss uh, he's a registered psychologist He's a consulting psychologist as well, and he completes the psychological assessments uh, for diagnosis purposes. Anthony Campagato, he's a uh, registered psychotherapist with a master's degree. Um, he specializes in all different types of therapy, um, and he's a great asset to the Morgan Center. He brings a wealth of information, and his um, approaches are accommodating with many, many, many different clients. Sharon Langley, uh, she's one of our newest members. She's a registered social worker. She has 20 years experience at the North Bay General Hospital. Um, and she has extensive uh, training in cognitive-based mindfulness, addictions, um, and she utilizes all different types of therapies uh, with her client base. And then myself. Uh, yes, I've been in practice for 15 years. I use a fairly integrative approach as well. I'm a very direct therapist. Uh, so um, getting our work done together with both client and um, therapist is important. I think part of our programming and our environment at the Morgan Center focuses on integrity, compassion, and being genuine. So those participants and my employees are all very important traits to demonstrate to clients is the genuineness. Uh, it's a very comfortable environment and it's uh, non-threatening and our mission is to provide that type of treatment so people don't feel as if there's a power differential. So we are ourselves and we do believe that that is extremely helpful for clients. Kelly, how do people reach you then? Do you have a website, Facebook page, anything like that? Absolutely. They can reach us at www.themorgancenter.com. We also have a Facebook page, uh, The Morgan. Uh, you certainly can reach us um, at any time at 705-472-9090. So Kelly's going to put up all the information on the website. So if anybody wants to head over to bysarlo.com, 
because maybe you just don't have a pen and paper on you at this moment, Kelly's information is going to be there. Kelly, I want to say thank you so very much for coming to educate us today. And Kelly and I would like to have you back because this is just page one, so to speak. We need to know so much more about this and how to deal with it, whether we have it or someone else around us does so that we are kind in how we treat other people. So thank you. Thank you. If you have questions or comments about today's show, you can email us at info at Otherwise, have an excellent weekend.